Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Absence of Malice, released December 17th, 1981. It was written by Kurt Ludke, with uncredited work from David Raphael, directed by Sidney Pollack, and released by Columbia Pictures. One day before this film's release, Kristen Ritter was born. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, B, in apartment 23. No relation to John Ritter. Is that true? Correct. Oh. I, I, I actually always yes. assumed that they were related. Nope. <laughs> but I think the voice of uh, Dipper Pines from Gravity Falls. Yeah, Ball, Jason but, Ritter yeah, is. Yeah, is the son. They look so much alike, too. Well, yeah. Okay. The, those two obviously are related. But I, I, I guess I always assumed it was his sister. Yeah, nope. <laughs> but they did date for a while. It, what? No. No. <laughs> I don't know what that would have to do with them being siblings. It's like, they're not siblings, <laughs> but they did date. <laughs> Journalist Kurt Ludke resigned from his position oh, as... Oh, you know who he's married to? Sorry. Who Jason Ritter is married yeah. to? Yeah. I feel like I have heard, but I don't remember now. Um, was it, well, I'm going to forget her name now. Is it Melanie... But she, I mean, she's in tons of stuff, but she's the, the, the steps, one of the stepsisters in Ever After. She's the... Never seen it. Are you kidding me? No. Oh my God. I'm going to look up her name now. I'm sorry. You'll, you, you'll know her. Um, Melanie Griffith? Melanie Linsky? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why are you saying no? <laughs> they just seem like an odd match. Really? It's Melanie Linsky? Yeah. They, yeah. They're so cute together. It's the most adorable right, that's thing. that's great. Yeah. Good for them. She's on uh, that new show with uh, Pedro Pascal, right? The, with the mushrooms. Oh, zombies. yeah, yeah, yeah. She is yeah. on that one. She is so badass in that show. Yeah. I love it. Do you know who she was married to before she was married to Jason Ritter? Please tell me it was Kristen Ritter. John Ritter. Jimmy Simpson. Jimmy Simpson. Isn't that an interesting couple, too? <laughs> young uh, Ed Harris. Yes, young Ed Harris. <laughs> she was married to a young Ed Harris. <laughs> interesting. Journalist Kurt Ludke resigned from his position as executive editor of the Detroit Free Press to move to Los Angeles and write this screenplay. Director George Roy Hill was briefly attached before Sidney Pollack, who was a bit worried about the lengthy work of first-time writer Ludke, but very confident in the story he had crafted. Ludke sold the script to Orion for a quarter million and $100,000 on completion with a percentage stake in net profit which is a prank that Hollywood plays on first-time writers because there's no such thing as net profit. Bizarrely, the story of the uninvolved youngest son of a mafioso teaming up with his family to embarrass law enforcement was originally set to star Al Pacino, who had already done that less than a decade earlier in The Godfather. And insanely, Diane Keaton was the first attached as his love interest, just as she had been in The Godfather. <laughs> Why would you have... Michael Corleone played the son of a gangster who fights back and joins the family to defeat the police yeah. again. The film has been presented in years since for academic purposes to teach the importance of confirmation and avoiding romantic involvement with a source for journalism students. The film was nominated for Best Actor for Newman, Supporting Actress for Melinda Dillon, and Screenplay. That seems odd that, that they're hammering home the romantic element of it. Like... I feel like if you're using this as a guide for teaching about, it should be about the integrity of reporters, not don't you lady reporters fall in love now. Yeah. But it's also like a huge stereotype that I think that like Clint Eastwood like infused it into the, in the Richard Jewell movie, they made up that the woman who wrote the story about him had like fallen in love with her source. Mm. And all these people were super mad. They were like, why would you imply that this journalist fell in love with the source and that she was so unprofessional? It's like, she implied that he, this guy was a mass murderer. Who fucking cares what we imply about that lady? We open in a busy newspaper office. We see a monitor with the beginning of an article. Federal agents today launched a massive manhunt for missing union leader Joseph Diaz, who rose from the ranks to become president of Miami Longshoremen's Local 308. 
We see the whole process of headlines being printed, cut out, and laid in place for the daily issue of the Miami Standard. This whole this whole section was actually really fascinating. Yeah. All the, the creating the inverts and then the raised and then like curving it to go on the rollers. It's yeah, like, they oh, do wow. it in the movie The Paper too. They mm. they go into like the machine works of it. It's It's interesting. A follow-up article suggests Diaz has been missing for six months now and is presumed dead. We cut to Sally Field as journalist Megan Carter passing a newspaper stand on her way into the Dade County Courthouse. In a small room, Bob Balaban as Elliot Rosen operates a projector to screen black and white footage of a mob funeral. As people's faces enter frame, the picture pauses long enough for Rosen to identify them to the room. The man, Santos Malderon. The last man we identify is Michael Colin Gallagher, played by Paul Newman. He's the nephew of Malderon, the Don, and the son of Tommy Gallagher, the man being buried in the footage. Occupation, wholesale liquor. On screen, Michael turns toward the camera and the film strip comes to an abrupt end with a jostle. Miss Carter finds the offices empty and asks Secretary Donna where everybody went. She mentions that they're screening surveillance footage of Tommy Gallagher's funeral. Actually, it's pretty funny. Bob Woodell gets slugged at the end. <laughs> Which explains the camera shake at the end of the footage. Now, this isn't the incident that put uh, Paul Newman's character into the, like a criminal record. Yes, is it? it this, is. This yeah. is the, that he, incident. He literally punched the cameraman at the end of that shot, mm-hmm. and he was charged with it. Okay. And that's his only charge on his record. Apparently, this funeral was three years ago, and Michael was charged for assault for attacking the cameraman. Donna suggests that Meg flirt with Bob Waddell for access to the footage, since we'll learn they used to be an item. The rumor is that Michael Gallagher is the Michael Corleone in Godfather 1 of the family, not involved in their dealings, but Rosen claims not to buy it. Meg encounters Bob on his way out of the building and asks about the film reel Donna mentioned, and Bob threatens to have Donna fired over mentioning it. He suggests a drink later, but she claims to have plans. Back at the offices of the Miami Standard, played on set by the offices of the Miami Herald, Meg scrolls through a microfiche from the late 50s to learn the Gallagher family. She asks to have an article on Michael printed, and then calls Bob to make a date tonight. Meg shows up at the bar to see him after all. She claims that she's only come to keep Donna from getting fired for leaking information. Meg starts fishing for info about Michael Gallagher, and Bob has to stop their chat. She claims to have met him at a party once, and he tells her to stay away from that guy. He's insulted that she didn't come to spend time with him, and she stands to leave. Back at the offices of the Miami Standard, Meg consults with her editor, Mac, played by Joseph Sommer, who we just saw last week yeah. as second-in-command at Bureau National after Chris Christopherson was installed. It, it's so funny. I was watching this film with my dad, and uh, you know, we got to the scene where they, they come together, and my dad is like, who's that actor? I was like, oh, that's Roy Leftcourt. <laughs> <laughs> it took me like half the movie to realize that's not his name. That's the character's that's name the that he played. character he played in the other movie that I saw him in. <laughs> we cut to the office of Elliot Rosen, where he positions the Michael Gallagher file conspicuously on his desk, and then calls his secretary to ask her to call him when the reporter from The Standard is in the office with him. He intentionally leaves the file where she can read Gallagher's name while refusing to divulge any information on the investigation. What can you tell me about the Gallagher investigation? I can neither confirm nor deny any investigation which may or may not be in progress in this office. Not for attribution. No confirm, no deny. Background. Can't help. Off the record. Off the record? Yeah, off the record. No comment. You're a real sweetie. I told you it was going to be a dull conversation. He gets a call from his secretary, just as he requested earlier, and gives Meg time to finish her coffee and notice the file on his desk. He pretends to rush off to a meeting and leaves her alone here to peruse it. Back at the standard, Meg credits informed sources with a lead that Michael Gallagher is a key suspect in the presumed murder of Diaz. She's confused why Rosen left the file out instead of commenting off the record, since it makes little difference. The paper's legal team is concerned that the piece reads like an accusation for which they could be held liable by Gallagher in the event of his innocence. Meg points out that she's only reporting an existing investigation and not accusing anyone herself. The lawyer claims that if Gallagher were to sue them, they couldn't prove the claims of the article in court and would owe the man a settlement. He suggests at least reaching out to Gallagher for comment, even if they can only print his absence of a response. What are you telling me, Counselor? I'm telling you, Madam, that as a matter of law, the truth of your story is irrelevant. We have no knowledge the story is false, therefore we're absent malice. We've been both reasonable and prudent, therefore we're not negligent. We may say whatever we like about Mr. Gallagher, and he is powerless to do us harm. 
democracy is served. The article runs in the paper with the headline, Gallagher, Key Suspect in Diaz Disappearance. We see it being delivered by Paperboy the next morning. A woman we'll come to know as Teresa Perone, played by Melinda Dillon, smokes a cigarette in a bathroom stall of a Catholic girls' school. She's caught by the mother superior and scolded. Insanely, Michael Gallagher is allowed access to the Miami Standard offices and walks directly to Meg's desk on the news floor. She's shocked by his appearance and spills coffee all over everything. He demands a source for her claims, and she doesn't provide one. He wants to know if they'll print a retraction when he's found innocent, and she says the DA's office doesn't denounce the closing of investigations. We cut now to Rosen speaking with Miami DA James A. Quinn, who wants to know what's going on. Turns out they aren't investigating Gallagher in the Diaz killing. They leaked that story to scare Gallagher and to force his mafioso family to take some action. Diaz's disappearance seems like a direct reference to the disappearance of union leader Jimmy Hoffa, whose remains have yet to be discovered to this day. Quinn reluctantly grants permission to investigate Gallagher as long as they try to turn him into an informant first, since they seem already sure that he's not involved. We see Mike at the warehouse that he ships liquor out of. He's visited by members of the task force. They're here to ask him for info on Diaz and to offer him a deal to inform them. He refuses to talk with them until they cite a source for the Standard article. They ask where he was the night Diaz disappeared. Where were you May 25th, 1980? You got a warrant? No. Get the hell out of here. His name's even Michael, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, right? <laughs> when Michael gets home that evening, he finds his older brother Fredo. No, that's not true. <laughs> he finds a woman waiting on his porch. This is his childhood friend, Teresa Perone, from the Catholic school earlier. She's here because she knows where he was on the night in question and that he wasn't involved in Diaz's disappearance. Man, I always confuse Melinda Dillon with, with Blythe Danner. Oh, well, Blythe Danner's a good one, too. I always say D. Wallace. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I was like, I was like, oh, that's the mom from E.T. He's like, no, that's the woman I always confuse for the mom <laughs> from yeah. E.T. That's the mom from Magnolia. <laughs> you oh, but, know, but you won't say. All three of them are, are fairly interchangeable, I think. Yeah. And her and Blythe Danner, it's like, I already confused them, and they're both in Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. <laughs> so it's like, God damn it. <laughs> He invites her inside for dinner. He tells her that all the FBI will do is go around asking questions, but it's nothing to worry about. They might even ask her a few. She reminds him that they were together at the time in question. He tells her to be honest with anyone asking unless they ask about where they were that day and she doesn't feel like answering, in which case she can just say she doesn't remember. Meg from The Standard calls Michael at his warehouse to arrange a meeting to discuss her article. He invites her to lunch. She brings along a recording device with a tiny microphone, or micro-microphone, pinned to her jacket. Her editor sends a photographer to tail her in a VW bug. Unfortunately, the guy is completely incompetent and follows directly behind them the whole way to a marina. Mike takes Meg onto his boat, the Rum Runner, and they go to have lunch on the water. What's the matter? Are you scared? Of course. The photographer sent to follow her looks helpless as the boat pulls out onto the water. They talk about the Gallagher family's bootlegging history, but Mike claims never to have been involved. I never got into whatever you call it. Why not? Sounds lucrative. It's against the law. She keeps asking questions and claiming to be perfectly fair with him when he breaks and asks about the guy tailing them or the obvious microphone pin on the jacket she is refusing to take off despite the heat. Back on shore, the photographer is employing a police helicopter to keep an eye on Meg. Mike demands to know the source on her article and, of course, she refuses. The copper chopper arrives and calls down to Meg, asking if she needs assistance, so Mike takes her back to the marina and she returns to the newsroom. I was going to say, uh, had it landed, it was like, do you remember the last time we had a pontooned police helicopter? Super Chupa. Jaws 2? I was going to say Jaws 2. It could be Jaws 2. <laughs> I do remember they had a helicopter and that Ernest Borgnine had to like climb down from it. Or did the super cop climb down from it? Oh, I don't recall. Yeah. Back at Gallagher Imports Warehouse, the Longshoremen's Union is stepping in to bar their members from working at the wholesaler, presumably because of Gallagher's alleged connection with the disappearance of Longshoremen Union leader Diaz. When Mike arrives, he stupidly talks shit about Diaz before assuring them he had nothing to do with the man's disappearance. The workers refuse to split with their union and so evacuate the worksite. Meg's article may have cost him his whole company. That night, the reporters gather at their usual watering hole, and Meg finds Mike with his second-in-command, John Arega, waiting for her. 
Mike takes her away to dinner at a fancy restaurant, and she tells an amusing story about her father getting drunk one night. Apparently, this is a true story from her life, as retold in her autobiography. Mike waits for her to finish the story before explaining that his workers have struck. He tells a less amusing dad story about his father doing time for his crimes. When he got out, he learned Mike had stolen a car to go joyriding with friends, and he locked Mike in a cabin for three days to teach him what jail would be like and scare him straight. Mike tops off their drinks and asks her about the DA when she finally realizes he's only here for information, the same way she visited him earlier. Mm -hmm. She offers to pay the check and leave immediately. We get quick inserts to imply that someone is following them. He takes Meg back to the bar where she left her coworkers. When the man continues following Mike down the road, he stops his car at a light and runs back to tell the man following him that he'll meet with Santos tomorrow. So these aren't cops or reporters, they're members of his extended mafia family. The next day, he meets his uncle Santos at a baseball game. His uncle tries to warn him that the government will approach him with deals to turn informant, and Mike assures his uncle that they could never persuade him to do that. Uncle Santos hits the nail on the head. You know what I think? It's downtown. They got nobody for deals. They're in trouble. They're embarrassed. Maybe they think you'll help them if they push you hard enough. You know a lot of people. That's why your guys are following me. What are you going to do? Are you going to help them? It's not my business. They can make you think it's your business. Don't sell them short. They got ways. Meg is waiting in a park when she is visited by Teresa Perone, who has reached out with an alibi for Mike Gallagher. Meg assumes his girlfriend is ready to jump on a grenade for Mike, but Teresa corrects her. No, I've never been Michael's girlfriend. I've known him since childhood. We're, we're friends. Of course you think he's innocent. No, I know he's innocent. How? Well, because I was with him at the time. She's very reluctant to divulge specifics. She won't say where or allow her name to be used. I don't really understand why she comes if she's not going to tell her. Because she thought this was enough to just say, yeah. I was with him. I don't know how investigations work or articles. Yeah, but I th feel like without any evidence, like they, she can print anything. But even when she agrees to let them print stuff, there's no evidence involved. It's literally yeah. just a lady talking. Right, but I guess if she, yeah. Meg is skeptical that Teresa could accurately recall such a specific date, but she makes it clear the date was important to her. She can't divulge any more because she's an assistant principal at a Catholic school and it would lead to a scandal. Meg doesn't see how she can help because she doesn't have a confirmable source for any information. Teresa offers more details on the condition that it not be included in the article, but Meg can't keep that promise. Teresa clearly doesn't want to go into any further detail, but eventually she does against her own best interests. Miss Perona. Look, I, I really don't want to be rude, but I don't understand what you're trying to tell me, and I, I do have a deadline. I have to get back to the paper. We finally learn that on the day Diaz disappeared, Michael accompanied her out of town for a procedure and stayed with her for three days. Meg says it's not as embarrassing a secret as she thinks, but Teresa reminds her she works at a Catholic school and that her father would never forgive her if he found out. Teresa begs her not to include the information in the article because it doesn't affect the veracity of her claim. Meg asks for physical proof of the trip, and Teresa wanders away silently. We cut across town where Mike is arguing with a restaurant over a short shipment because Mike and John are having to box all the liquor by themselves at the warehouse. Eight and a half cases short, and he drops us after 12 years. Eight and a half cases seems like a lot yeah, of that, alcohol. that is a lot to be short. Did you expect them to just pay for it anyway, or did you say it would be late? I think I need more information to decide who's the asshole here. Well, and does he just not have it? No, I think he has it. He just can't move it fast enough because he doesn't have anybody at the warehouse anymore. Right. Well, I thought he maybe just doesn't have it because the longshoremen aren't... Oh, he can't even get it into the warehouse. He can't get it in. Maybe. Yeah. After hours on the news floor, Meg works on the article with her editor, Mac. He recommends including the abortion detail because that's what makes the story believable. But legally speaking, it doesn't make the claims therein more legally defensible or accurate. Yeah, anymore. I'm not sure. I, well, I guess, like, he said that he, she, he wouldn't print it unless she includes it. But, like, it doesn't... It doesn't feel necessary. No, it doesn't. Teresa never provided proof of the procedure anyway, so it's just a claim made by a close right. friend either way. We cut back to machines printing papers, 
and another paper boy, or maybe the same one, on his delivery route. <laughs> Teresa is waiting on her porch to intercept the article, and when she sees her procedure mentioned, she runs down the street collecting copies from the lawns of her neighbors. Later, on the news floor, a woman shares unfortunate information with Mac, and he approaches Meg with it. There's been an accident. It's Teresa Perone. What happened? She killed herself. They found her about an hour ago. Meg is in shock, and eventually Max suggests she go home for the day. He will write the story on the suicide. He tells her it's not her fault, even though it clearly is, and he mentions yeah. the story of a man who deflected a presidential assassination attempt who was outed by articles announcing his sexual preference to the public. Turned out he was also gay. It's news, right? Now the whole country knows that, too. Did he kill himself? He didn't kill himself, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, maybe that was a bad example. Is that news, though? I mean, is that relevant at all to what happened? It's like, oh, a guy pushed the gun so that President Ford wasn't shot. Also, he has sex with men in his spare time. It's mm-hmm. like, what? Who asked that? What does that have to do with anything? I don't think that's news. At first, I conflated the story with Squeaky Frome's failed assassination attempt of Ford, but the one he's talking about was literally 17 days later. He was shot at in Sacramento, and then less than three weeks later, he Mm -hmm. was shot at in San Francisco. Mm. The coincidentally gay hero was decorated U.S. Marine Oliver Sippel, and he was largely disowned by his family in the wake of his involuntary outing by the papers. Instead of going home... Meg, insanely, decides to confront Teresa's best friend in the world, Mike Gallagher, while he packs liquor into crates alone in the warehouse. He warns her to leave before she gets any closer, and when she ignores this warning, he attacks her. He tears open her shirt and throws her to the ground. He tells her this is how Teresa must have felt, to be so publicly raped by her article. He informs her that a suicide is treated as a homicide by the coroner, and now she'll get a full autopsy because of what Meg did. Then I get a knife. I start here. I'm just gonna split her open. When they get up here, they use shears. They use shears! For Christ! Oh, God damn you! The point is, you are alive when they start to eat you. <laughs> so try to show a little respect. <laughs> That's what it just reminded me of. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe across the belly, spilling your intestines. Meg takes time to recover and then approaches Mike in search of a coat to cover her torn clothes. She promises to return it. Couldn't you see what it was to her? Couldn't you? Stop scribbling for a second and just put down your goddamn ballpoint pen. Didn't you see her, didn't you? Didn't you like her? It's clear the message of this film is that the press are evil and they don't view their subjects as humans. But this comment pushes Meg over the line and she reveals the source on the original article. It was Rosen. It was Elliot Rosen. Runs the strike force. He's the one that leaked the story about you. In Rosen's office, Bob is telling Rosen that Mike's not going to cooperate and Rosen says they can't accept that answer. We get a quick glimpse of the sparsely attended funeral of Teresa Perron. I believe the man standing beside Mike is her father and it seems weird that the father of his childhood friend is about the same age as him. (laughs) Also weird that this guy isn't angrier to see Mike, but technically her suicide was as much dad's fault because he's the one she was hiding the procedure from, so. That night, Mike goes to visit his uncle and start a plan to bring down Elliot Rosen. The next day, he buys an answering machine and records an outgoing message. (laughs) I assume he just didn't have one before that because he didn't care. Right. Now it's a trap. He goes to the bank and withdraws a cashier's check for $3,000 with a memo of Committee for a Better Miami. He drops the check in the mail. Late that night on the newsroom floor, Meg is editing an article while another reporter interviews someone about a local shark attack on the phone. But don't get your hopes up. This is the last we'll hear of them. (laughs) Mac takes a seat with Meg and tries to talk her out of the reporter life and behind an editor's desk. I know how to print what's true. And I know how not to hurt people. I don't know how to do both at the same time and neither do you. Maybe you're tougher than I am. Yeah. We cut to the next day as Mike Gallagher meets with D.A. Quinn on the beach. He says he's willing to turn informant, but he wants Quinn as his contact because he doesn't trust Rosen. It has to stay off the books or his family will find out and have him killed. 
He refuses to share anything until the papers report he is no longer under investigation. Quinn can't promise that, and so Mike can't promise anything either. That night in her apartment, Meg types away at a desk until she hears Mike knock at the door. She invites him in, and he has a gift. It's a new blouse to replace the one he tore. This is a weird note that I have, but I was just fascinated by the grandfather clock in, in her apartment. Oh, I didn't even see I, it. Yeah, I didn't even notice. Because <laughs> oh, it, it's like it's like a super ultra-modern grandfather clock. If It's like lit from below. Oh, weird. And so like the pendulum and the counterweights are fully exposed, and the clock has like a very modern analog dial. Um but uh, yeah, the, just the way it was lit and kind of like standing out in the open, it was like it was very modern furniture, but also a cool clock. Yeah, interesting. Mike offers a half-assed apology for attacking her. He thanks her again for Rosen's name and apologizes for whatever it cost her to cough it up. But we never really see her pay any price for that. Yeah. They make vague plans to see each other again someday before parting ways. Back in Quinn's office, he informs Rosen that he's terminating the Gallagher investigation because of its fraudulent origin, and Rosen is weirdly quick to admit all of it. It's called Washington. You say what? You say whatever you want. I'm going to say that you're running a bogus investigation, that you're trying to coerce a private citizen becoming a federal witness. You know what I was doing. Yeah. I should have stopped you then. I'm going to stop you now. Want to join me in the statement? No, thanks. Say your cards. You plum. Quinn makes a public statement clearing Gallagher of all charges, and everyone is confused by this monumental break from standard procedure. Instead of backing off as ordered, Rosen requests a 24-7 tail on Gallagher and taps on all his phones everywhere he goes, including calls from the DA. We're going to find a judge who'll let us tap Quinn. I'm not going to ask a judge. It's no good in court. I'm not in court. Not yet. This is dirty, hairy-level, worthless police work. Yeah. None of this is admissible anywhere, so it's totally pointless. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess in if you're playing a long game, you could always blackmail Quinn. Yeah. But, I, but at least you would have evidence that Quinn was doing something, so you could, like, I don't know. I don't know where you would go from there. Yeah. But And what's weird, though, is that the third act of this film, we enter, like, a pseudo-court where yeah. all this stuff is admissible for some reason. And it's like, what we say in this room is kind of irrelevant if we go before an actual court because you can't bring any of this evidence up. So why doesn't Quinn actually just turn Rosen in? I don't know. That would have been the smart thing to do. The next day, Gallagher gets an early copy from Meg of tomorrow's front page article announcing the declaration of his innocence and the closing of the investigation. Mike and Meg meet up at night to go for a walk, but we can hear a photographer snapping shots of them from the shadows. Mike is up at 5.30 the next morning and heads home to listen to his voicemails. Someone named Webb leads a message asking to speak with him. I don't know who Webb is. Do we come back to Webb? Well, I think that... Uh, I was is talk- this a fake call? Yes. So okay. uh, I was talking to my dad about this afterwards because uh, I think he... And he has some of his uncle's hoods going around just making calls about Leaving nothing. confusing messages on his answering yeah. machine. Yeah, because he knows it's all tapped. On his boat, Mike watches through binoculars as cops are crawling the marina to keep tabs on him. He leaves messages on his own machine to confuse Rosen and the strike force, who shouldn't even be surveilling him in the first place. But he suspected correctly that they couldn't help themselves. Our boy's getting nervous. He wants a meeting. And then there's one that says, our boy is getting nervous. He wants a meeting. Our boy, huh? Somehow, wrapping the phone receiver in cellophane is enough to change his voice and make it unrecognizable. Like I say, everyone knows you need a kazoo to do that. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) getting nervous. (laughs) Mike takes out $6,000 in another cashier's check, again to the Committee for a Better Miami, and again he mails it in. Bob and Rosen catch wind of the $9,000 worth of checks to the committee and assume that Mike bought his way out of the investigation and maybe they've been on the right track all along. Rosen finally realizes why it was dumb to conduct this investigation and break every rule because they can't use anything they found out. But Bob points out that they know about a meeting tomorrow and at the very least it's in public. So they're allowed to be there and take pictures. They just have to be shady when people ask where they heard about this meeting. Mm -hmm. Mike meets in a parking lot with Quinn to share mostly information he already knows. Quinn is pissed that he put all this effort into information that he could have read in the paper. While they talk, we see a member of Rosen's strike force photographing the two chatting. 
Bob approaches Meg to warn her about the apparent bribes. Gallagher paid off Quinn. That's why he called off the investigation. I don't believe you. She's not privy to Mike's plan, but still doesn't believe what Bob says. He gives her photos of the cashier's checks and his meetings with Quinn, and lastly, photos of their date, which Mike probably did on purpose because he knew they would take those pictures mm -hmm. and that Bob would warn Meg in advance because he knew that they were yeah. in a relationship previously. Bob tells Meg that she can't write about this and she can't tell Mike because he could get him fired or her killed. That night, Mike shows up with wine for a date and senses right away that Meg is upset. She can't hide what she knows and asks Mike if he knew Quinn would clear him and he claims it was a surprise. She stops the conversation dead and asks for the truth. He says he'll give it to her as a person, but not as a reporter. You want to know the truth? Okay, you want to ask me as a person? I'll tell you. You ask me as a reporter? I got no comment. That's not fair. Not fair to who? Wait a minute. You don't write the truth. I mean, you write what people say. But you overhear, you eavesdrop. I mean, you don't come across truth that easy. He's insulted that she still doesn't trust him, but he's also doing a lot of nefarious dealings in the background, and it's yeah. weird for him to just expect her to accept it when she's a smart person. But I also think it's very unfair for her to, to be like, no, tell me everything, but yeah, also and, and I'm a reporter. going to be in the paper yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> he refuses to tell her everything and leaves. Now that she's done one of the things Bob told her not to do, she begins working on the other thing Bob told her not to do, which is writing an article on Bob's findings. The next day, she's in Quinn's office asking for comments on the allegation that he accepted $9,000 in donations in exchange for clearing Michael Gallagher's name. And he doesn't even deny it. think about it yeah. because he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is 100% fabricated. So he doesn't bother to deny it, and he's on the record, and then he freaks out when she points out that, okay, so that's what you want me to say in the article? And he does offer a denial because the article goes to print with a firm denial in the first sentence of the article. We cut to Rosen reading the story on the front page about a Quinn Gallagher link, which will obviously lead to a massive new case. Mm -hmm. We see Rosen read it first, then Mike, and then we cut to Bob in a bar lamenting sharing the info with Meg in the first place. At home, Uncle Santos laughs his ass off reading the article. <laughs> I really like this shot yeah. of him just like just cracking up with every sentence that he reads. Enter Wilford fucking Brimley. Yeah. <laughs> Again, when we were talking about uh, a couple podcasts ago of... Uh, Actors who only have like a few minutes on screen, but yeah. freaking steal the show in yeah. every possible it's way. It's amazing. Wilford Brimley is James J. Wells, Assistant Attorney General for the Organized Crime Division of the United States Department of Justice. Wells leads a private inquiry on the allegations, and all interested parties are present. Meg brought the attorney from the Miami Standard, and Mike is here representing himself. Wells would like to handle this behind closed doors, but if anyone puts up a fight, there's a grand jury impaneled downstairs ready to hear the case. Now, if you get tired of talking here, Mr. Marshal Elving Patrick there will hand you one of them subpoenas he's got stuck down in his pocket, and we'll go downstairs and talk in front of the grand jury. Now, we'll talk all day if you want it. But come sundown, there's going to be two things true that ain't true now. One is that the United States Department of Justice is going to know what in the good Christ, excuse me, Angie, is going on around here. And the others, I'm going to have somebody's ass in my briefcase. God, I love Wolford Brimley. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad they saved the best line in the film for his late appearance because that's amazing. He calls on Elliot Rosen first for an explanation and then Quinn. Neither are excited to talk until they're threatened with the courtroom again. Quinn breaks his silence to announce that Mike is officially a government witness on the Diaz case directly under Quinn. Rosen asks him to explain the campaign contributions, and Quinn is blindsided by this bribery accusation. He claims that he never reported the meetings because it was a stipulation of Gallagher's involvement because he thought his family would find out and kill him. Rosen acts like he's already won the day until Wells asks why he thought illegal phone taps were a good idea. Rosen says their investigation was only preliminary, but he thinks he has a solid case now, and Wells wants to hear it. Rosen seems hesitant to lay his cards on the table in front of everyone, but he presents Mike with photocopies of his cashier's checks, and Mike is quick to confirm their provenance. Yeah, they're mine. Yeah. <laughs> he claims he made the contributions purely for the aid of the city of Miami. Because Rosen can't prove any ulterior motive for these donations, his case basically ends here. <laughs> That's the end of it. In the corner, Meg silently puzzles out the whole scheme and realizes Mike's just trying to embarrass Rosen and Quinn. 
When asked why he made these contributions anonymously, he says he didn't want other people asking for money. Yeah. <laughs> I love that bit. It's just like, oh, everybody's going to want them. I, I didn't want to throw them out to everybody. I'm just trying to give this one guy money. The reason you made these contributions anonymously is that you were paying off. Prove it. <laughs> Quinn loses his temper and accuses Mike of trying to frame him. He is trying to frame me. What's his motive? To get even, you dummy. Two guys ought to get married. Wells asks Meg where she got the information that led to the first article. I don't believe she has to divulge this information, and her mm. lawyer tries to make that point but gets shouted down. She willingly tells Wells about the file that Rosen left on his desk to leak the original investigation. Did you ask Mr. Rosen what in the name of Christ he was doing leaving the file around on his desk for you to read it? He intended me to read it. Why would that be, Miss Carter? So that I would write a story that made Mr. Gallagher look bad. With regard to the second story, Meg refuses to divulge her source. He tells her that if she refuses to answer these questions on the stand later, that she could face jail time. She says the second leak wasn't intended as a leak. It was a warning, and she printed it against the person's advice. She's tired of being put in the position to hurt someone with her honesty and prefers to go to jail on her own rather than reveal the source. So it's really very simple. I can hurt someone or not hurt someone. No rules. Just me. I can't tell you. It seems clear to Wells that Rosen is right and Mike set all this up, but he's too smart to admit it mm. and he hasn't done anything illegal. Yeah. <laughs> so even if he did admit it, it would just be like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I gave him money so that you guys would think that, but I didn't say that that's what right, happened. Right. So you guys drew your own conclusions from what I did, the end. He reminds everyone that they're all smart and they're all just doing their jobs, but that a woman has died thanks to them. Wells excuses Gallagher and Meg from the room. He informs Quinn and Rosen that he's going to have to put out a press conference explaining that the DA is just dumb and fell for a prank. Now everyone but Quinn and Rosen leave, and Wells points out that, unfortunately, no one's going to believe that Quinn was just dumb and that he advises him to resign because mm -hmm. otherwise people are going to assume that this was a payoff and that Mike did pay to get out of being investigated. I think there's no way around that. There's, right. there's, yeah. no, there's, there's no solving that for yeah. him. Quinn's, Quinn's screwed. Rosen thinks he got off easy, and Wells advises him to plan a post-public service career and gives him 30 days to vacate his position here. Meg and Mike meet at the elevator, and her attorney gives them some privacy. How do you know I'd get the story? I knew somebody would. I'm sorry it was you. How do you know I'd print it? It's news, isn't it? When the elevator opens, she doesn't follow him in, and we cut back to the news floor at the Standard. Everyone turns to watch Meg cross the room. She sits down at her desk, catches her breath, and Mac informs her that another reporter, Sarah, will write the follow-up article explaining this whole debacle. Sarah questions Meg on her relationship with Gallagher, and she doesn't know what to say. Say we were involved. That's true, isn't it? And maybe for the first time, Meg realizes she doesn't know if it was true. No. But it's accurate. The next day, she finds him on his boat. It looks like he's packed all his possessions onto it and sold his house. He says he's leaving, but he hasn't picked a destination. People are going south and west, but uh, I think I'll go north and east. She tries to defend the profession of journalism by confessing she's just bad at it. She offers to write him letters the way she does for her father, and he suggests they could meet again someday. This bit was kind of forced onto the end when the producers demanded that they keep an open opportunity for the characters to reunite later, but obviously they weren't implying a sequel. Yeah. They just yeah. wanted to keep it open for the shippers. He, speaking of shippers, <laughs> he ships off to sea under the film's credits, the end. Absence of Malice. Yeah. It's really good. I, I really like this film. I thought uh, it was good. This isn't, uh, this isn't the first time I've seen it. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I was introduced to this movie maybe actually like only only like three or four years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, I was like, oh, wow, that was really good. Yeah. And I, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. I, I like the performances from everybody. I like the web that he weaves at the end of this that he kind of pranks everybody into yeah. falling into his trap at the same time and and uh, he plays such a great like mastermind where you know even like Brimley can't pick on him like he tries to like yeah hey you did this on purpose didn't you and he just doesn't say anything and Brimley accepts that as an answer every time well I, you know I, I think of like the sting yeah and it's like oh yeah he's really good at just playing these long cons yeah 
But he goes, it, it feels like a real transformation, though, because the first half of the movie, he's literally just a guy who runs a liquor warehouse. Right. And the second half of the movie, he's like fucking Kevin McAllister. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what happened to this guy? Why is he suddenly so schemy? Yeah. But uh, he's he's really mad on, on behalf of his friend. and uh, As well he and, should be. And he burned it all down, which is great. Though I think I might have been a little bit more satisfied if he got some revenge on on meg in some way yeah i mean like i i get i think that he is that he does like her but i think she was pretty shitty to him yeah i also i think you replace that last scene with him going to visit his uncle santos and he's like oh man i wish you could have been there it's so great and he's like you think that was great you should have seen when we killed diaz here in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fucking funny it's like is that is that diaz under your coffee table <laughs> <laughs> it's like ah, that's what's left of him that's as much as we could find. Yeah. Uh, I really like this. It's a big thumbs up for me. Yeah, I'd give it a thumbs up. Yeah, for sure. A thumbs up. Uh, what are we thinking letterboxed for this? Oh, I got to switch to. Oh, God. Uh, I, ha- I have it in a, a... I have it pretty high. Uh, I have it at 56 out of... Oh, God. Now I got to scroll to the bottom. 56 out of 171. Okay. It is below, oh, another uh, reporter movie, uh, Eyewitness. Okay. Uh, but above Tim. All right. Uh, I have it at 28, uh, which puts it below Heavy Metal, but above Fox and the Hound. I have it at 68, which is just under Mommy Dearest and just above Prince of the City from <laughs> another Sydney. Actually, mine's pretty close to Heavy Metal and Fox and the Hound too. So I feel like we feel the same about right, it. Right. It's just further down in my list. <laughs> but Prince of the City is the next one down. I feel like that's a pretty steep drop. Yeah. Well, everything above it is perfect and good. <laughs> <laughs> the director here was Sidney Pollack. Before this, he directed They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Jeremiah Johnson, The Yakuza, and so far on the show, Three Days of the Condor. After this, he directs Tootsie, Out of Africa, and the Sabrina remake. He also acts a lot, including a character in his own Tootsie next season, and later Altman's player, Zemeckis' Death Becomes Her, and foot fetishist Grant Trimble on King of the Hills Season 4, Episode 23, <laughs> Transitional Amusements Presents Peggy's Magic Sex Feet. That's what? the name of the episode. What? <laughs> he plays like... A guy who, like, I think he's posing as her podiatrist at the beginning, and then he's just, like, so attracted to her size 16 feet yeah. that he makes a website for them. Yeah, he has, he has her, like, stepping on, like, egg show, eggs or, like, slopping around and, like, yeah. pudding and stuff like that. It's like what your landlady tried to get oh, you to God. do for a while. Let's, let's not bring up my old landlady. <laughs> what? <laughs> she was like, oh, you could do foot sessions in my back house. And she's like, I'm good. I'm good. That, she, keep she, my shoes on. I'm going to wear two shoes on each foot. <laughs> she, she like blamed, a painter. <laughs> she blamed. Uh, she blamed my boyfriend Patrick for for holding me back from my potential. Yeah. You know, for participating in her foot sessions. Well, you should see her feet, though. <laughs> <laughs> Writer Kurt Ludke. This was his first script. Next, he wrote Out of Africa, which I think won Best Picture. So, pretty solid first couple mm. films. And later, Random Hearts, both for Pollock. So Pollock directed that one too. Writer David Raphael, uncredited, previously wrote Jeremiah Johnson, The Way We Were, and Condor for Pollock. He's back for Out of Africa and later The Firm and the Sabrina remake. The music here came from Dave Grusin. He also scored Fuzz, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, The Yakuza, Three Days of the Condor, Murder by Death, and more recently on the show My Bodyguard and On Golden Pond. Cinematographer Owen Roisman previously lit The French Connection, Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid, The Exorcist, the original Taking of Pelham 123, Stepford Wives, Three Days of the Condor, Network, and so far on the show, The Black Marble, True Confessions, and Right Around the Corner, Taps. We just lost him in January. The editor was Sheldon Kahn. He cut One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki, and so far on the show, Same Time Next Year and Private Benjamin. Later, he cuts Ghostbusters 1 and 2, Out of Africa, La Bamba, and then mostly Ivan Reitman stuff. Twins, Kindergarten Cop, Space Jam, Evolution, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, and Draft Day. Paul Newman was Michael Colin Gallagher. He's Cool Hand Luke and Cool Hand Luke. He's HUD and HUD. He's Butch Cassidy and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's the Hustler in The Hustler, and he's the Verdict in The Verdict. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> 
We've seen him so far as oil worker Hank Anderson in When Time Ran Out, and then as Murphy in Ford Apache the Bronx. He got Best Actor nominations for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Hustler, HUD, Cool Hand Luke, Rachel Rachel, and then this. And after this, he got another nomination for The Verdict, and then finally won for Hustler sequel The Color of Money. And more recent nominations include Nobody's Fool and Road to Perdition. No nomination for Mr. Musburger? Apparently not. From the Hudsucker Proxy? Yeah. It seems like uh, he should have gotten that. Almost director of this film, George Roy Hill, had previously worked with Newman on The Sting, Slapshot, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Sally Field played Megan Carter, or Meg. In 79, she was awarded the Best Actress Oscar for Norma Ray. Between these films, she appeared in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and Smokey and the Bandit 2. We saw her last in Backroads, opposite Tommy Lee Jones. She also appeared with Newman's ex-wife Joanne Woodward in Sybil. She won a second Best Actress Oscar for Places in the Heart in 85, and more recently she had a nomination as Mary Todd in Spielberg's Lincoln. Reuniting with Tommy Lee Jones, but not as love interests. Bob Balaban played Elliot Rosen. We had him earlier in our Patreon review of Catch-22, and then Altered States, Prince of the City, and most recently Whose Life Is It Anyway. He's Dr. Chandra in 2010, creator of HAL 9000. His first feature film was Midnight Cowboy, his uncle Barney Balaban was president of Paramount from 1936 to 1964. He's Oscar-nominated for producing Best Picture nominee Gosford Park, which he wrote with Altman and Julian Fellows. So would that make him a Nepo baby? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah for it's, sure. It's his uncle? Yeah, but also his uncle left Paramount in 64, and his first film was in 69, so... Yeah, but he's he's still connected to the industry, and I think that that's what the Nepo baby really means. Yeah, I think so. I was trying to figure out, uh, because my dad recognized him, and says, it's Bob Balaban. I I can honestly not think of a movie that you would know him from. It's like, I I know him from, like, just I mostly think of, like, the Christopher Guest stuff. Yeah, like, or or even uh, Wes Anderson stuff. Is he in Wes Anderson stuff? Mm -hmm. What's he in? Like, Royal Tenenbaums or Uh, something? uh, He's in... um, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, okay. And uh, oh, God, what else? I'm blanking now. He was in an episode of uh, Tom Goes to the Mayor when mm-hmm. I was an intern on that show. Oh, I should have brought up uh, Seinfeld because he's like the producer of the show about nothing that, they're, oh, that they okay. keep trying to make. When they're with. trying to pitch yeah. like toward the end of the last season. Mm-hmm. Melinda Dillon played Teresa Perone. Before this, she was Suzanne in Slapshot with Newman and Julian Geiler in Close Encounters. She's probably best known as the mother from A Christmas Story or the mother from Harry and the Hendersons, but I always think of Rose, You Know But You Won't Say Gator from Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Oscar nominations for Supporting Actress in Close Encounters, and then this, both for Columbia Pictures. That's so funny that you say that, because I always think it's Dee Wallace and Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> Luther Adler played Santos Malderon. He was Hitler in The Desert Fox and Professor Wheeler in Voyage of the Damned. Joseph Sommer played McAdam, He's called Mac in the movie, but his credit is McAdam. We saw his first role as Rothko in Dirty Harry, and again just last week in Pakula's Rollover. He's also Palmer Strickland in Strange Days and the president in X-Men The Last Stand. Wilford Brimley was James J. Wells. We've seen him in Brubaker and Borderline. He's Dr. Blair in The Thing. He's Ben Luckett in Cocoon. Pop Fisher in The Natural. He had previously worked with director Pollock on The Electric Horseman, and they reunited for The Firm. Moving down the list from here, it's a lot of Florida character actors. <laughs> so you'll hear a lot of repeats of Eyes of a Stranger, Island Claws, Super Fuzz, Nobody's Perfect, Final Countdown, etc. And then a few years after this, Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> yeah. But there's like yeah. so many of these people show up in every Florida movie. <laughs> William Kerwin played Walker. That was the photographer from The Standard driving the VW. Uh, he was Detective Pete Thornton in Blood Feast. Oh. Not to be confused with Pete Thornton, who edited Kill and Kill Again, or Pete Thornton, head of the <laughs> Phoenix Foundation. Director of the Phoenix Foundation. <laughs> boss of Agent Angus MacGyver. Uh, but they're all spelt the same. Isle Earl played Nun. She was Mrs. Morris in the Porky's movies. That's, that's another Florida mm-hmm. pack of films. Bill Hindman played Priest. He was Coach Goodenough in the Porky's movies. Timothy Hawkins played FBI agent. He was Jeff in Eyes of a Stranger. Kathy Sergu played Karen in Eyes of a Stranger. John DeSanti was Longshoreman. He plays the killer in Eyes of the Stranger. And he was recently Gangster Knuckles in Nobody's Perfect. Jack McDermott played News Staff. He was Mr. Harper in The Fun House. 
and Win in the final countdown. Funhouse, also a Florida production. Yeah. Lee Sandman, or Sandman, <laughs> played news staff. He's police chief McEnroy and Super Fuzz. Rachel Jacobs played Shelly on Growing Pains, but it doesn't say who she was. It just says uncredited. I think that's everything for Absence of Malice. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Ghost Story, which IMDb describes like so. Two generations of men find themselves haunted by the presence of a spectral woman. When the son of one of the elderly men returns to his hometown after his brother's mysterious death, they attempt to unravel her story. We leave you now with the trailer for Ghost Story. I will take you places where you have never been. Start. I will show you things that you will never see. Beginning. And I will see the life run out of you. Long ago, on a cold, dark night, in this peaceful New England village, something happened. Something too terrifying to remember. Something too frightening to forget. Something that has remained a secret until now. Did anyone else seeing these? Am I the only one having nightmares? Universal Pictures presents Fred Astaire, Melvin Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., John Hausman, Ghost Story, from the terrifying best-selling novel by Peter Straub. Who is this? He's not a picture of her. That's not possible. The girl, the men, the evil, the silence. Dad, I'm telling you something happened. I'm telling you something. I think he may have been murdered. The house, the fear, the nightmares, the vengeance, the terror, the truth. Not now, Rick. Yes. Now, something's happening. Something terrible. I fear that more of us are going to die. No, we, we, we must talk about it. Ah, uh, she's not the person you think she is. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, no, please, let's not stop. She's worried you have the wrong idea about her. Everything about her is wrong. No, please, please let me talk about her. Get away from her, Dave. <laughs> what are you? She's dangerous. Listen to me, please. <laughs> Soon they will learn that they have never been forgiven. <laughs> Ghost story. The time has come to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs>